0: you love to talk about your dog almost too much? Us too, which is why we created a space where we celebrate it. This is for those who love the four-legged friends they rescued because they got rescued right back. Each week, we bring on a dog mom or a dad to talk about their rescue dogs and how they changed their lives. This is Rescue Dog Moms, a parenting podcast. I'm Yamini, and this is Boss. Go, go. Hello Dog Moms and Dog Dads, I'm here and uh, Boss is right up against the microphone ready to bark. Welcome to the Rescue Dog Moms podcast. Today's guest is Amber, mom of the Canadian Canine Crew. She's an exceptional foster and a trainer with Dancroft Canine Services. This discussion is the first in-depth training chat we've ever had on the show. And I loved chatting with Amber, learning the best ways to integrate dogs into your household and help them be their best selves through training. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at Rescue Dog Pod, and have a great day. Boss says hello and bye. Hi, Amber. Welcome to the Rescue Dog Moms Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. A lot of people in the community have just always brought you up I think you're just even since I you know started being part of this rescue community in Toronto I've also heard a lot about you we've never met (laughs) but I just know that you're definitely like a big pillar and help so many dogs you know either through fostering and like fostering training so I'm definitely excited to chat with you about it and I'm excited to be here the main thing that I always love to do with our podcast is start off with some gushing but so I hope you're ready to just talk about your dogs for a little bit. Oh my God.
1: I, am I never not ready for that? <laughs> yeah,
0: I figured. I mean, I picked my guests pretty carefully and I assume that gushing is an encouraged activity. So as I say, like Miss Dog Mom, let's talk about your kids. I didn't know in my outline if I got all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll let you um list your dogs and chat a little bit about them
1: my first dog I got like I got her one month after I moved out on my own for the first time I was 21 I was just so eager to get a dog that I think I literally just moved out so that I could get a dog like that was the main goal the number one priority when I moved out on my own for the first time and so at that time I was 21 I didn't know any better I hopped on Kijiji and I knew I wanted a big dog but place that I was renting said no big dog so I was like okay what is a big dog and personality, but small in body. And I thought a Boston Terrier, I need a Boston Terrier. So I'm going through Kijiji and I find this Boston Terrier mix. And I'm like, you know what, that sounds kind of good because Boston Terriers have all these health issues. If I get a mix, maybe it'll be healthier. And I pick up Penny. Three months later, I moved to a different place and I'm allowed a big dog now. <laughs> So I go out and I apply for a dog, at Team Dog Rescue. He was listed as a Basenji mix, which at the time I was obsessing over Basenji. So I found him on Pet finder, dove right in, applied for him. And to my surprise, I got him. I was shocked that they would adopt out to me. This is when they had first just started their rescue, but obviously very, very a pleasant surprise. I had a six month old puppy and a one year old dog that I uh, came from South Carolina. And a few months after his adoption is kind of where everything started. I started experiencing some training uh, issues and that kind of started my journey down the training road and then fast forward a few years and I I met my partner Phil. Phil wanted his own dog. He obviously loves my dogs, (laughs) but he wanted his own dog so he got Quinn and Quinn was just we were taking care of her for someone it was supposed to be a one-night deal and he's like no she's not leaving she's my dog. We kept her. Everyone knows most of my dogs everyone knows Gunther Uh, he is definitely my my go-to my demo dog. I bring him everywhere with me so he's the most recognizable face in my And he is a foster fail, the only foster fail I've ever had. And we foster failed him two and a half years ago. He was from Toronto Animal Services. Uh, Someone dropped him off there at about a year old. At that point, he had already been to a couple different homes. No fault of his own, really. Uh, Things happen and he just got dealt the bad end of the the situation. So he ended up at Animal Services and they determined there during their medical intake that he has a murmur and that they couldn't put him on the adoption floor. So they sent him to teen dog where I fostered him and he went to a cardiac specialist. Turns out he's fine. He does have a heart murmur, but it won't affect him anyway. He can mm-hmm. still exercise. No medication won't get worse with AIDS. Yeah. So I decided that, uh, that I'll keep him and he's been a wonderful addition. So we have the four, our Boston mix, Mo, which is, I don't know, we did, we did a DNA test. He's a cattle dog, Ty Ridgeback, Staffy, couple other really, really interesting breeds. They're no Basenji. He was just a mix of five crazy, crazy, high drive wild breeds. And now that I know that, doing the DNA test way down the line, I'm like, oh yeah, this all makes sense. This is why you're crazy.
0: I had the same thing with our dog boss. He was listed as a puggle. And we were just like, yeah, sure. But he just had this like anxious Chihuahua personality. And then yeah, when we did his DNA test, he was 50% chihuahua and only 25% said pugs. So I was like, all right, that makes sense. So that is who you are. <laughs> Oh, well thank you for sharing all your doggies and def- their background stories. What are they like in personality?
1: Penny is your typical <laughs> just like boss, typical chihuahua. <laughs> yeah. She walks around here like she owns the joint. She tells people where to go, wh- what to do, not in a, in a super mean way, but she's definitely confident in her own skin and she walks around here like she owns the joint and possesses a lot of that very, you know, chihuahua bossy kind of qualities. Other than that she's fun. She's a lot of fun. I I was, you know, I did a lot with her when she was younger. So she experienced a lot, which means she's pretty adaptable in new situations. She's, she's lovely. I mean, obviously she's my dog. So I think she's, she's awesome. (laughs) I've always wanted to do like competitive agility with her, but I've kind of missed that window. She's a bit older now, but I think she would have been a rock star in that. Our Mo is, is a fantastic dog. Again, another one where I was, when I got him, I was just learning the ropes and time goes by so gosh darn quick. But if I had to go back now, I think he would make an amazing obedience dog maybe even a a bite sport dog. He's 10 now, so he's old. And all he does is sleep and dream and think about running, but doesn't do a lot of running because his (laughs) joints just can't handle it these days. So he just spends a lot of time snuggling up on the couch with my partner in our office. And that's where he spends most of his days now. Other than that, he's a huge swimmer. He would, again, he would have been great at dock diving. He does love diving into the water and we've done it informally with him before. I mean, he totally loves it. That's totally his cup of tea. Our Quinn is... Yeah. <laughs> 95% couch potato, 5% wild animal. Like if she's on, she's crazy. She does spring pole, wall climb. She flies like 10 and a half feet on the wall. She's super, super athletic, but that's only 5% of her day. <laughs> the other 95, she is sleeping. She's snuggling. She's just quiet as can be the most well-behaved dog, a really, really big sweetheart. And saddest part of it is, even though she's like our most easy, well-behaved dog, she's the one that, you know, falls under like the BSL category. And, yeah. and get, you know, kind of looked and frowned upon. And I'm like, she's the nicest one. She's <laughs> she's the sweetest one. She's the calmest one. She's the most well-trained. And she's the one that people look at. And I'm like, hey, man, she's fine. She's actually like, it's the little ones you got to be careful about,
0: right? Yep, it's true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then our Gunther is kind of our, our highlight rock star right now. And his personality yeah. is just very, you know what? He's very what shepherds are supposed to be. He's aloof to other people, which on one hand, I'm like, you know what? I like that I'm the the center of your world and you don't look away from me but on the other hand I'm like go say hi to that person they're talking to you that's so rude don't give them the cold shoulder (laughs) and I would have loved to make him a therapy dog but I feel like he would just be out there hurting people's feelings with ignoring them when they're talking to him I'm like look at the person they're talking to
0: so funny because it's definitely like (laughs) neutrality is what we all strive for in training it's like the best in terms of that but yeah sometimes you are just like people want you to do this so yeah I
1: want you to develop other relationships ships <laughs> like It's unhealthy if you just spend your day sitting there staring at me all day. <laughs>
0: Oh man, yep, I know what that's like. <laughs> what a great pack. I didn't realize it had so many different like shapes and sizes, oh, backgrounds. We don't have a type here. <laughs> no, I love that. How are they when you welcome new dogs in your home, whether that be helping a dog who just needs a place or fostering things like that?
1: So Penny is always our go to. She has the best social skills. She is very a very good judge character when it comes to dogs so when we let dogs in she is usually the first one we introduce them to if we don't have any history with dogs and then we go from there and she's the kind of girl who she'll hold her own if she needs to but she's also very like welcoming and inviting and if the dog's nervous she'll go up very slowly turn sideways lift her leg let them sniff she'll play about and invite them in but if they're really rude and pushy she'll put them in her place their place and say hey that's not okay here you can't do that kind of stuff and so she's the best one to to start off with and it helps me kind of understand that dog a bit better as well. And then from there, like we usually put them in with Gunther and see how they respond to a larger dog. Gunther is, he's seen so many dogs that he's like, okay, yeah, mom, another dog. Great. <laughs> like you brought home another one. So he's pretty impartial to dogs. There's the odd one he plays with. It's usually if he develops a relationship over time, he'll play with them. But other than that, they're not really relevant to him. He doesn't really care about their existence. It's The same with Quinn as well. She takes a while to warm up to a new dog. She doesn't care about their general existence, but it just takes her a while to actually develop any sort of relationship and want to maybe play with them or interact with them in any way. And then Mo is kind of like, he's an old grumpy man. So we, <laughs> so when we integrate him with other dogs, we just make sure that we do it out on walks and we're just walking together as a team and he doesn't care about them otherwise. Um, but when we're in the house, he doesn't want anyone in his space. He's kind of a bit of a loner. And so aside from like Penny and then being out with, with the rest of our personal pack, he kind of just would rather be solo. So he doesn't get to go free roaming with the other
0: guys. Fair I mean, our dogs are such a big part of our fostering experience. I know from my side, boss has become a grumpy welcomer now. So (laughs) it's definitely if I decide to bring another dog in this home, something to consider. So it's great that you have dogs like Penny, um, who just are like doing the job for you at the beginning.
1: (laughs) Exactly. She's, She's, I don't know, honestly, what I would do without her. She's been so amazing.
0: Let's talk about rescue in general. So you mentioned a bit, obviously, that you adopted some of your pack, but how did you become involved in rescue in a deeper way?
1: So it happened probably about eight years ago. Um, At this point, I had had Penny and Mo and I had gotten Mo from Team Dog. So I started fostering for them. And I can literally remember my very first foster. Her name was Bessie. She was from the Northern communities, and she was lovely. She was uh, maybe eight months and she was easy peasy. I remember thinking, like, wow, if this is fostering, I could, I could do more of this for sure. And it wasn't until I got about three dogs in that I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, they're not all easy. <laughs> and yeah. I had my first challenging one. And at that time, I was not skilled enough in handling. And I, I was kind of at a loss. And no, the dog was displaying some resource guarding. It had crazy amounts of energy. And I couldn't think of outlets on how I could get this energy out of his system. And I just kind of felt like a little bit of a prisoner in my own home. I was tiptoeing around and I was just like, I couldn't read him, I didn't know what to do. And Thankfully, like I reached out to the rescue and I said, Hey, I just I don't feel qualified to be handling this dog and they had him moved. And I still track him now. He's he's happily adopted and they're in love with him. So he's quite good. But I remember that being my first experience where I was like, Oh my god, what is this? (laughs) Thankfully, that didn't deter me from fostering altogether. I continued to foster and I started branching out to other rescues as well. I started taking in dogs that were outside of my like realm and things that I wasn't uncomfortable with, but I never knew about and that I had to learn from. So I took in a dog with megasophagus who ate in a Bailey chair. I took in dogs who were missing legs, dogs who needed their bladders expressed, dogs from meat markets in Korea, dogs from all these kinds of different situations where I had to learn about where they were from and how to adapt to them and how to help them adapt here with us. And the more I did, the more I learned, and the more I learned, the easier it became again. And so it's, probably been about a 100 I've honestly lost count but 150 foster dogs in the last eight years and now it's like crap yeah yeah. (laughs) and now it's like nothing now it's like yeah "Yeah, okay no sure I'll just one more dog it's fine and and it's very rare that I run into a dog that can't adapt well here they generally do quite good in this environment my only struggle is that there's there's not enough hours in the day
0: yeah Do you find that even dogs, you know, like dogs who are listed as not being great with other dogs, is that something you have taken in or is that like a requirement? that do you um, consider? No, I
1: will happily take in dogs who are not good with other dogs. I would say that and it's, it's completely up to the rescue. It's the rescue's yeah. dog. I'll definitely abide by their rules. Um, some rescues are like, you know what, if you want to integrate them and you feel like they're a good candidate, let's see. Because sometimes these dogs are not dog aggressive. It's just yeah. that we didn't develop a healthy relationship or the dog that they got into a fight with was an extremely rude dog and no one was there to mediate and coach them through the interaction or, you know, maybe that dog wasn't feeling well when that happened. And so it's really hard to judge a dog off of one or two interactions and and then just categorize it as dog aggressive as a whole so i'm definitely open when a dog comes in my door even if it's deemed you know dog aggressive i'm definitely open to just seeing what the dog offers me and allows me to do and then going from there and there have been some dogs who were deemed aggressive and they're actually perfectly fine you know we have we have gibson right now who i wouldn't say he was ever deemed dog aggressive but he's the kind of dog who needs to develop a relationship with a dog and have the dog earn his trust before he completely lets his guard down around them and if they push him too far too fast he will defend himself you know if he feels uncomfortable so he's a dog that in the wrong hands and in the wrong eyes can be deemed dog aggressive but he's actually quite dog social he just needs the time to develop that skill. Then we have Miss Noriko right now which is our Akita and she has actually killed a dog but the thing with her it was very special circumstances Akitas are notorious for being territorial and Mm. she also was weaning puppies she had puppies with her at the Uh, time yeah yeah and and it was a small dog was it circumstantial did the dog get underneath the fencing like we just you know you don't have all of the details to know whether or not she was just protecting her territory protecting her pups what the case is and i'm not going to hold her be her judge like she's a very kind sweet dog she's not maliciously trying to go after yeah you also can't think
0: about dogs that way like it's not like a moral decision that they made no she's not
1: (laughs) trying to rage on the world. She's not mad at other yeah. dogs. Yeah. She's literally just, I think it was just a, a one-time thing. And granted, like even if it was a one-time thing, just given her breed and her size and the nature of how that all developed, she will not be integrated with other dogs.
0: And we've just, you know, kind of kept it at that. That is so interesting because definitely, you know, with most fosters, especially those who are learning, we definitely try to keep, you know, descriptions and history. mind. But I do think it's important to note that environment is everything that introductions are everything. That's something recently that um, as a volunteer and rescue, I've emphasized so much that no matter how great a dog seems just to keep those introductions slow dogs, other animals, kids, all of those big check marks.
1: I was thinking about this recently, I think why fosters feel this pressure is because you kind of have to get a bio out. in a week or two. And so with that bio, you kind of feel this pressure to answer some questions. Is it dog friendly? Is it kid friendly? Is it cat friendly? Is it good on leash? Does it have separation anxiety? Is it crate trained? Is it potty trained? And so I think that that comes with a a timeline and feeling like you have to get those answers in the first couple of weeks to create the bio. And I think that's why people kind of rush into it. But when you're developing like relationships and you're developing an understanding and communication of boundaries, you know, limitations and what the rules are in this environment, if you go too fast and 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 you fail, and you have a a bad outcome, it is so much harder to go back and fix that now versus if you just set the dog up for success, took it nice and slow, very low risk, and then developed it slowly over time, then, you know, obviously, your success rate will increase.
0: I mean, definitely your dog having that trust with you and having that bond with you makes things so much easier. So if you focus on that to start and then integrate, especially things like crate training that if it goes wrong, it goes really <laughs> wrong and then it's so hard to recover. So that's definitely a great point. Are you involved in rescues in other ways or do you primarily focus on fostering?
1: I am all over the place. I will help where I can, when I can, whenever I can. I know I've recently uh, we've had this kind of weird point in rescue where everyone got their dog already, right? Everyone got yeah. a dog during COVID. The adoptions have gone downhill. We're not really seeing that many adoptions now, especially especially for our guys that require a little bit of extra care. And so with that, um, I've had a lot of new rescues that I've maybe never heard of before, or I've never worked with before reach out to me saying, you know, we're desperate. We have this dog. it needs to move. Can you take it? And I, I just, I can't, I can't physically take another one. And so I always say to them, like, I'm so sorry if, you know, something opens up, if I get availability, I will in a heartbeat like message you and, and we'll talk about it. I said, but I can't, I can network for you. I can share the post. Yeah. I can think about someone who might be a good candidate to either foster or adopt. And I always say, like, if you need help in any other way, I I will do it. If I can do it, I will do it. I will happily go and man a booth at at an event. I will happily go and groom a foster dog. Um, I will happily do whatever else you need me to do. I just physically can't foster all the dogs. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But in every other way, the only thing that I'm not great about is being a core member of a rescue is extremely difficult because you are required to output, you know, 10, 20 hours a week, sometimes consistently week after week. And that for me is something where I just don't always have that kind of that availability to say, Hey, I've got 10 hours a week to do, you know, onboarding new fosters or do home visits or whatever the case is. So that's one, one place where I've tried a couple of times and I'm like, you know what, I would love yeah. to help, but I just cannot commit that amount of time. But there's so many other ways that you can give your help. Right. And some of them,
0: <laughs> there you go.
1: some of the ways that you can help just require sharing a post like it's as easy as that it takes you two seconds just share it send it along you know some of the things it means just going out to an event like supporting them at the event buying a t-shirt like it's not that hard you just got to get out there and and do something right a little thing doesn't need to be huge whenever i need something if i need a new leash or a new dog jacket i go to maddie's place they have a rescue retail i might as well go there support them first before i go to Petsmart, right
0: oh that's awesome yeah i'm a core member of my rescue and it is my life. So I totally agree <laughs> with you regarding the time commitment. Something we've recently even just, you know, really like tried to push forward is that I think a lot of new people to rescue think that fostering is the way to help and not realizing how difficult (laughs) fostering can be so I always like to emphasize that there's so much you can do so many degrees of help like if you want to meet dogs being a transport volunteer is you get to meet every single dog in the rescue pretty much and get to spend great quality time with them you said all the things you mentioned there's just so much out there that can help the whole community or a specific rescue or a yeah. specific dog whatever your goals are. Yeah,
1: and if you have like a specific skill set, like I've been assisting with groomers for many years and so I definitely know how to trim nails. So every first Sunday of every month I go to Maddie's place and I do a nail trim clinic and I just go for the day, clip a dog bunch of dogs nails and that's my contribution, right? And I just it only takes me 3 or 4 hours one Sunday a month. Like it's it's easy enough and that's a skill that I have that I can offer to someone else.
0: I mean, we need that. That is (laughs) like, I mean, the groomers are have a total shortage. So it's hard enough to book appointments now. And yeah, my dogs need a nail trim so bad. So (laughs) I am just keeping this top of mind right now. (laughs) <laughs> but let's get back into fostering. I would love to chat about just your experiences and some tips. Definitely, you've said you've had fosters of all shapes, sizes, behaviors. For the tougher dogs, the ones that maybe come with some history and you're trying to help out a rescue. When you're like evaluating these dogs and coming up with a plan for them, what are goals that you keep in mind for these dogs?
1: Each dog is is. De- Definitely like a different individual. And I would say in most scenarios, we have some degree of background. So if the dog was destined for euthanasia, if it was a onerous surrender, if it came from another rescue or shelter facility, we generally have something to work with and some sort of understanding as to how this dog operates in certain situations. What you mentioned earlier about environment is, is so important to keep in mind. In my house, in my environment, under my watch and under my coaching, I'm going to get a dog that might not look the same as a dog who would be under a different environment, under a different handler. And so it's important for me to remember in particular that the dog is successful here. Now, how do I I make them successful with other people? Because they're not going to be with me for their entire, well, hopefully (laughs) they're not going to be with me for their entire lives. So it's, for me, it's always thinking about how is this going to transfer into a new environment? How am I going to set them up for success moving into a new environment? What do I need to know? You know, what is the dog telling me that I need to be mindful of? And for me, it's always like when a dog comes into my house, the way my house is situated, which I love is that you have the entryway is about six to eight feet of hallway space before they ever see anything.
0: Mm-hmm. And so when
1: I bring them in, i try to make sure that my dogs are exercised and put away initially when they come in, especially if they're like a nervous dog or if they have a long standing history with any sort of behavioral issues I don't want the first thing for them to see coming to my house is my dogs because that's a little overwhelming yeah so I try to make sure my dogs are all taken care of they're up in their crates they're away and then I just let that dog come in and we'll work at that dog's speed if that dog is curious and outgoing and wants to explore I always 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 leave the leash on but I'll let them explore be curious for sure if the dog is a dog who maybe has had a past of any sort of human type aggression then maybe I want to be a little bit more diligent about obviously free roaming and, and letting my guard down. obviously have to be very mindful about things. I'm going to use food to my advantage in that case. But then I kind of go with the dog speed. It's it's The dog will really let me know when it's ready for the next thing. So when I look at the dogs that we have right now, Thor is a lovely Bernese Mountain dog who he was destined for euthanasia because he was having issues with the other dog in the home. And he's otherwise a very healthy, happy, lovely dog. It was just like he was having the issues at home. And, and knowing that the owners had described it as, as unpredictable, and, and maybe it was. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it's entirely possible that the owners maybe missed cues and it was resource guarding. Maybe it was the dogs weren't getting along as well as they had thought, and they were missing little cues to indicate that maybe Thor wasn't happy or comfortable or whatever the case may be. And so with Thor, he's a really, really good example of a dog who we're just working on his pace. And it's a long, long, long way. It's a very slow process for him. We get him out a couple times a week just to stay in the neighborhood, do a few little laps around. I try and take him to areas that are really quiet and there's just grass and a lot of space and I put him on a long line and I let him just be curious outside and that's it. That's all. That's all our goal really is. I want to stay connected with him. So I do bring food and I do like, you know, keep him engaged with me while I'm out. But I just want him to see what outside looks like. And I want him mm-hmm. to see an environment that isn't crazy and chaotic and unpredictable and that not an environment where there's awfully leash dogs or kids running around. I want him to just see a quiet outdoor space that isn't our home a couple times a week. That's the goal for him. And it, it's going to be a very, very long journey. And, and Thor one of those dogs like, I'm going to accept you for who you are. We'll work at your speed. I'm not going to push you to develop skills, because it's not important, going to go to a home that's quiet, that doesn't have a lot of coming and going that, you know, has a backyard, so he could just go and lay in the sun in the summer. And that's the goal for him. When I look at my Akita, my Akita is very brave and outgoing and confident. And for her, it's making sure that I understand the full parameters of her personality. So we take her to pet stores, we take her to Queen Street, we take her on the TTC and I'm trying to see how she responds and interacts with the things that are going on around her and how she, sh- she handles that. Because that will let me know how skilled of a handler she's going to need. She's going to need an experienced handler. We know that. But is she pulling? Is she lunging? Is she barking? Is she developing these skills where I'm going to say, hey, she really needs to have someone who's committed to training ongoing because this is going to be a big process for her. And it turns out she's actually quite lovely. She's very adaptable. She doesn't pull. She's a good little walker. She doesn't have any sort of reactivity. With each dog, you kind of have to develop based on who's going to be applying to adopt them, based on what they're already giving you. And sometimes you're going to have to accept them for who they are, and you're going to have to work real slow. And sometimes they're going to be doing awesome. And you can say, you know what, we're ready for the next challenge. Let's take her to a new place. Let's let her meet a friend of mine, um, you know, obviously under control and supervision. Let's put her in these scenarios so we can develop further understanding of who she is while practicing all of our, our safety protocols and making sure that we're setting her up for success to the best of our abilities.
0: I can definitely relate to all you're saying. And I think one of the big errors I see a lot of like fosters or even like potential adopters make is introduce all those factors too fast. Just throw a dog in new environment constantly where they are not able to like absorb it or understand it and just feel overstimulated. Everything Absolutely. you're saying like definitely sounds like both, you know, even though they're two different dogs, like the main thing is just letting them at their own paces, like adapt to new environments.
1: Exactly exactly and I I understand from an adopter's perspective in particular is like it's like Christmas day getting a dog yeah right so I would imagine like a lot of people do this thing which is is everything is always well intentioned but just out of pure excitement and we're not really giving the prospective dog a chance people are like I got this new dog I want all my friends to meet it all my family to meet it the bio said it was dog friendly so then you start bringing it to dog parks and it's like whoa 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 (laughs) slow down develop a relationship with this dog develop some trust and then go from there but like it's 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 a little overwhelming for a dog who doesn't know who you are, where it is, what's going on to then have to deal with all of this extra stress in the environment as well.
0: And without knowing that you are a reliable advocate for them or leader for them, like, you you know, if you're not in their picture as part of it, (laughs) they are just going to feel totally alone if they're in a caught in a bad situation
1: absolutely absolutely that's 100% nail on the head you you'd nail that
0: since we're talking about this yeah like what advice would you give to maybe someone a brand new adopter or a new foster especially like how do they do this process of evaluating their fosters and seeing what they need
1: one thing that i will always recommend regardless of the circumstance is leave that leash on leave it on because come the time that your new foster dog counter surfs or your new foster dog maybe slips out a door or or a gate, or something like that, if you need to grab it fast, and you do not know this dog, you cannot grab it or its collar with no relationship that that puts you at a major risk of conflict with your dog. So, leaving a leash on number one priority when you bring a dog into your house. And if you feel like maybe the leash will get snagged on something, you can grab a dollar store leash and cut the handle off so you have just a little drag line. But that is the biggest thing because if the dog's not going to be allowed on the furniture and jumps on the furniture and you go to grab it and it doesn't know you, like you get t- caught in a tight spot really quickly. The other thing I'll say to people is that we oftentimes feel so guilty for these dogs. Oh, he's been through so much. He's damaged. He comes with all this baggage. The or baby and we don't set aside any sort of rules or boundaries and we just let them come all over us and jump into our space and have all the things and we end up regretting it later because we didn't create any sort of good habits. We let them jump on us and when they jump on us, we pet them and we love them. We kiss them because you're new here and, and I want you to know that you're safe and loved. But then come, you know, three, four, five weeks later, we're like, okay, enough of the jumping, stop doing this, stop doing that. Or we let them like run all over the furniture with no like boundaries and relationships. And then one day we tell them to get off the furniture and they growl at us. And we're like, who are you? <laughs> and there's this thing. I mean, we, we always talk about like the decompression phases and what happens in the first three days, three weeks, three months. But there's a honeymoon period, right? Oftentimes yeah. there's this honeymoon period of like, I don't know where I am. I don't know who you are. I'm going to be on my best behavior. Once they kind of settle in, then they start to think you're a pushover. And you're like, they're like, I can do whatever I want. This is my space. I can guard. I can bark at the window. I can guard the, the house. I can display all these behaviors. Now that I'm comfortable, this is my home. I can do all these behaviors. And this is where we get a lot of conflict. So I want to make sure that the dogs know like, Hey, you're very welcome here. I'm going to give you all of the the love and all of the things that you need to thrive and survive. But I'm also going to be clear about the expectation on my end. You're not allowed to do some of these things right off the top because gosh, isn't it confusing? If I let you do things for the first like week or two and then two weeks in, I'm like, Hey, you can't do that anymore. (laughs) I don't want to have to have that battle. I'd rather just set you up for success and say, hey, that's never been allowed and that will never be allowed just to avoid any sort of confusion or clarity issues.
0: Yeah, removing privileges is so difficult.
1: Exactly. When we get these dogs, typically they have been created in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whether they've been created to be transported here, whether they've been created in a former home, more often than not, they have been created. And a lot of people, <clears throat> you know, want to spend some time out with their foster dog, but it's important to remember to consistently still expose them to that like, crate, crating them at night, crating them off and on throughout the day. Because I do get a lot of people who say, you know, I was crating and then I stopped crating because he's been so good, and now I can't get him in the crate anymore, and he's mm-hmm. whining, he's crying, he's barking, and he's fighting it. And so I want to always have my foster consistently conditioned to the crate and just go in there to enjoy goodies. So that's where you're going to get your high value treats. That's maybe where you're going to get your food for a little while. That's where you're going to get your pig or your bully stick or whatever the case is. So that they start associating that, that space with all this really wonderful stuff. And so I do try and take these videos from time to time. When I let my guys up to their, what I refer to as their crate room, they barrel up there. They race me up there. And then they all sit at the door and like, open the door, open the door, open the door. And I open the door and they all book it into their individual crate. <laughs> and they're so excited to go in there because they know that that crate equals all of these amazing things. So I'm not fighting them to get in there. They, they want to go in there, but I want to make sure that I'm consistently exposing them. So even if they're wonderful in the house and they don't destroy things and they don't counter and they don't bark at the door, even if they don't do all those things, I still put them in there for four to six hours a day while I'm cleaning and vacuuming just to get them out of the way, just so that they're still getting that consistent exposure. Because come the time that they go to a new home, and they need to be created. I don't want that to be a foreign concept. I don't want that to be a fight for the adopter. You know, if they need to be created for a, an injury or to go to the vet or to go to the groomers, I don't want that to be a stressful experience for them. So I want that consistent exposure. And I think that's a big mistake that fosters will make sometimes is they let their dogs out of the crate for a couple of days, and then when they go to put them in because you know it's Monday and I got to go back to work, then the dog's like, "Hell no, I'm not going in there." Yeah. So that's a big one as well for sure.
0: Yeah, I always find that crate trading as a foster you know a lot of them will ask like do I have to do it is it like something your rescue requires and I always say no because at the end of the day every dog is different and every dog will take x amount of time to build that relationship with their crate but it is so important because to have a dog who panics in these um confined situations is not going to be successful when they yeah have an emergency vet visit or have to like for whatever reason they sustain an injury, you have to keep them on bed rest, but they're crazy dogs. Like that might be a situation where crating is really helpful. So there's lots of different circumstances, but I totally think that the best thing to do is like you said, just make it the most positive experience ever, every single time and keep it short. (laughs) Talk about crate training. What other like go-to training do you think like is important for a foster to approach with their dog to set them up for success at their forever home?
1: Always understanding like the leash. Like we spend so much time, or at least we want to be spending so much time walking our dogs. But if, if the walk is stressful for either one of us, then it's not going to be enjoyable for us and then then in turn we're not going to walk our dog as much so getting some leash training down is is the number one thing we're always typically set up with either a harness and a slip lead or a slip lead and a martingale or whatever the case is a combination typically and so you're gonna a get familiar with the tools that you're using and how they were intended to be used and what the purpose is behind them and then if those tools aren't working then speak to your rescue and say you know what other tools can we use can we use uh, you know a body clip harness can we use a face halter? what what other things are we allowed to use that we can maybe utilize to make walking more enjoyable. And then another thing too is that I think we get so caught up in the distance of walking that sometimes we forget about what we want to achieve on the walk. So I always tell Uh, my training clients, like when you're on a walk, it's less about 5k, 10k, 20k, It's less about that, I can go from the front door to the corner and back. And all I'm trying to achieve is a dog that understands what the leash pressure looks like a dog who looks to me more isn't engaged with me. And that's my priority, not the distance. It's like, what kind of quality of a walk are we having and walks are something that we typically do with every dog. So it's definitely worth worth the time investment. And it's something that you're going to have to learn to do slightly differently with every dog as well. And so for me, that's a very, very important one is understanding that. Another thing that I think people don't really utilize as well, and and this doesn't necessarily apply to every foster dog or it maybe doesn't apply to some dogs at the beginning, but utilizing food. Uh, we typically put food in a bowl and put the bowl on the ground and walk away and call it a day. And I want to develop a relationship with that dog. And I want to become relevant to that dog. And I want to have value to that dog. And I can utilize food to do that. Now, I don't necessarily need to use food to just hand feed, I can use food to play different food related games. But I want that dog in er order to earn its trust and to seem valuable. I want that dog to think that man, she is the source of that food. And sometimes I have to work for it. Or sometimes I have to let loose and let my guard down to get the food. And so those are different ways that we can think about utilizing the fact that our dog needs to eat. How can I leverage on that? What can I do with that?
0: Yeah, I love just like the idea of food. You know, I think everyone kind of is like, are you bribing the dog or whatever. But if you just receive this dog, like, yeah, they have no idea who you are and if at least you're the food provider I think that's a pretty good start (laughs) for them to start like building a relationship with you
1: absolutely we're all hungry we all need food might as well leverage off of that and it's not necessarily I wouldn't even say that it's bribery it's maybe I'm using that food for an energetic young puppy and I'm creating good behaviors or I'm marking good behaviors and I'm rewarding things that I like to see maybe the dog is really really scared and I'm using the food to get them out of their comfort zone to explore a little bit more. And to be curious. There's a few trainers and like rescue enthusiasts. In the community that utilize a uh, a game called the treat chase game, and that treat chase game is a wonderful thing for you know really fearful or nervous dogs to really just let down their guard for a moment, forget about everything that's happening in the environment. Your only goal is to just follow that little kibble that bounces along the floor. Easy enough. And at first they might not even want to do that. And That's fine. Eventually, as the days pass, you'll continue to try, and one day they'll chase the kibble, and that'll be the highlight moment of your week. And then the next week it'll be better, and and just going and going and food is 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 such an incredible tool that people just don't utilize enough.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it hits all your pleasure centers too. like, you know, I think a lot of dogs want to please. And I think the ultimate like expression of that is like getting the best reward. I've heard of that treat chasing game. And we've been trying it with our newest adopter Queenie, who was a little nervous when we came in and she is food obsessed. So it went very well, almost too well. because Now I think, think she just is always like as soon as any treat is around she's crazy pants (laughs) but it's definitely like you said like some dogs even like are too they're too shut down to even like accept food from you because it's they're stressed which doesn't really help with your hunger they also don't trust you which doesn't help with accepting things so I love that game because it makes it playful but also you're not like putting that pressure on them of like oh you know like when you reach out when you're hand feeding and they're not accepting it it's a little like intense probably for them
1: Absolutely, and actually, that that kind of builds into something that, like a a topic that I'm pretty pretty passionate about. We get a lot of dogs in training that have bitten or snapped or growled mm. or lunged, in whatever the case is. And what a lot of people fail to recognize is that more often than not, dogs will choose avoidance if they're nervous. If there's conflict, they will choose avoidance. The problem with avoidance is that most people don't recognize it. We just it's so subtle that yeah. we don't see it. And there was um. A situation that happened with Thor that I I typically have used as an example recently, because it's such a good example, people are always so well intentioned. And we were taught as as kids to reach our hand out into the dog to let the dog sniff us. Now we know dogs have incredible noses. So there is no need for my, me to shove my hand into that dog's face for it to sniff me. It already got the chance when I was, you know, fifty, one hundred feet feet out. It smelt me. It knew. Yeah. <laughs> so the smelling concept of, of of sticking your hand out is not quite what it was all cracked up to be when we were told when we were children. The situation with Thor was an interesting one because I was at a store. A pet store and they wanted to give him a treat and I said you know we can try he probably won't take it he gets pretty stressed out in public environments and he sa- I said he probably won't take it so she came around the cash camera and she extended her arm offered him the treat now here's where the avoidance comes in so subtle people miss it he turns his head just slightly away from Yeah. Her, looks away from her turns his head away from her that was him politely saying oh no thank you and instead of taking that avoidance she then persisted and really tried to push it in towards his face and his nose and into his sight line and he scooted his butt back ever so slightly. And again, she just went back into it. And that's where like avocation comes in. Right. He has said to to her politely twice now. No, thank you. I'm okay. Thank you. And she didn't pick up on those signals. And and again, well-intentioned. It's not like she was being rude intentionally. She just didn't see it. And I was like, this is where the bite or the growl or the bark or the lunge comes in because he has tried saying no thank you the nice way and she wasn't listening. So this is where it's my job as his foster to say, you know what? He's really not interested. Please leave him alone. And and that that's my job to advocate for him. And so this is where people get really, really confused because they're like, well, I was just trying to say hi hi. I was just trying to offer him a treat. And suddenly he snapped, barked lunch, whatever. And I'm like, he, he tried to say no, likely it's not, most things don't happen out of nowhere. It's just that the avoidance cues are so subtle. We miss it. And then boom, we, we see all of the other cues that come beyond that when the avoidance didn't work.
0: And then worst of all, like sometimes dogs will just not trust that people will pick up on those cues anymore. And they'll just go right to the snapping, the growling, the more quote unquote aggressive cues that we identify that way as humans exactly.
1: exactly that's exactly
0: it I think um what I've learned even just through you know being part of rescue like I wasn't someone who grew up with dogs so I feel like I've kind of had the pleasure of learning from scratch a little bit but it's so hard with people who even just like grew up with dogs or just had different conceptions of what dog body language is I feel like it's one of the hardest things to train people or like you don't know, train people but tell people <laughs> what body language actually means. There's so much doggy body language that we've been told through the media or through everything that's just like that it's happy dog, but it's actually stressed dog.
1: So tail wag. It's not just that every tail wag yeah. is a happy tail wag, right? Yeah. And, and you can't rely on a tail wag. And it's the same thing with, you know, if you see a submissive dog and they go and they grovel and they go belly up, just because they're submissive doesn't mean that they want to be touched. You can't necessarily rely on body language. And a lot of people do miss those really basic cues regardless because we don't even recognize them. So the yawning, the panting, the The lip licking, the whale eye, like we tend to miss those things.
0: It's like also, you know, with humans, I think we interpret like excitement as like a positive thing. But with dogs, it can be like overstimulation. And then we get confused if like, oh, my God, they were wagging their tail and they were like approaching me. And then all of a sudden they snap.
1: Yeah. And the the approach, actually, that's a hard one for people to deal with. If the dog came up to me, then doesn't it want the interaction? But I always try and I always try and make people relate to other things. Right. So I can maybe be a little bit like anxious in a in a social situation. Not that I don't want the social situation. I want it. But once I'm in it, I may start to, you know, want to retreat or step away or start to feel quickly uncomfortable. And once I'm in it, it's kind of hard to get out of that. Right. Yeah. So sometimes it's not that the dog doesn't want the interaction. They want it. It's just that once they're there, there's so much pressure that occurs that they're like, "Oh, you know what? I'm kind of overwhelmed right now.
0: Yeah. Definitely. Those are things that are confusing for new fosters or new adopters and definitely learning how to, like you said, advocate for them, give them space. All of that stuff is really important. Let's talk a bit about your journey as a trainer. How did this uh, journey happen for you? It
1: all started with Mo, my second dog. You know, I I was your average adopter. I was 21. I got him in January. We lived in an environment or a neighborhood that there was rarely any dogs. I didn't have any friends with dogs. and none of my family had dogs. We would go to visit my mom who was in the beach every once in a while. And when I would take him there, I'd then take him down to the beach dog park. And I didn't know much about dog body language. I didn't have a history on him. And uh, I just assumed that because he got along with my dog, he was dog social. I took him there about five months after adoption and he got into a fight after he was humping a dog. Um, that dog had, to my recollection, turned around to to tell him off and my dog fought back. And I remember just being extremely embarrassed and be like, oh my God, was that my dog's fault? Why did that happen? Whatever. I, I left immediately in, in complete shame. A week later, same place same thing. He got into another fight. And I was like, what on God's green earth is happening? Mm -hmm. And so I then decided like, wow, he's, he's too big of a dog to be doing this with. And if it's happened two times, you know, the two times that I've gone there, then he must be the problem. But I wasn't able to identify what was happening and why it was happening. And so I just stopped going to the dog parks. And then because we lived in the neighborhood, there was no dogs around, it got to the point where his leash reactivity had gotten to the point where dogs were 50 100 feet away and he was crocodile rolling and thrashing and I was doing the whole like avoidance dance where every time I saw a dog mm-hmm. I'd start running in the opposite direction and at that time I had taken a job at a dog daycare and there was a trainer who would train at uh, two hours after the daycare had closed and my shift was always at the end of the day so I would always watch her do training and I was like wow this is incredible I was just learning so much and then I ended up enrolling my dog in training and then I ended up enrolling Penny in training as well and I did all of the obedience programs I did a bunch of their activity programs. And then I decided I love this so much. I want to be a trainer. And I started apprenticing under her, a lovely trainer. I don't know if you've heard of her, uh, Ola Zaluski now mm-hmm. Gentle um, of Paws Above. She's big in the rescue community as well. And I learned off of Ola for three years. And I learned so, so much about cues and reactivity and obedience and all that stuff. And then I went out into the world and I was like, I'm a dog trainer. <laughs> And I felt so confident. And then I met someone who was like, well, what do you think about the four quadrants? And I was like, the four what? And I was like, what is that? And I, in that moment was like, maybe I don't know as much as I thought I knew. And it's one of those situations that the more, you know, the less, you know, you know, like the more, you know, the more you're like, wait, hold on. I don't know that much. And so I, I just kept digging and learning and watching videos and reading books and talking to people and going to workshops and going to seminars. I was just astounded with how much more there was to it because for the longest time I was so committed to one specific process that it didn't even occur to me that there were other approaches and other perspectives and other ways of doing it and then I was like oh my god now I have to open up my brain to all these other things And I started learning about other tools and working dogs and dog sports and I was like oh my god there's more <laughs> and so I just kept building and building and learning and learning through all these different outlets. And sometimes it just meant that I paid twenty dollars and I got access to a video. Sometimes it's I found free content on YouTube, and you know you need to take things on on the internet with a grain of salt. But whenever I would see these things, I would then go to a friend or someone else within the dog community. And I'd be like, "Have you ever seen this? What is your take on this?" Because then they would be able to, to give me that feedback as well. And then the more I did things, the more I learned. But still, the less <laughs> the less. I knew. Yeah. Like. <laughs> and then I took a job at Dancroft after I had been there a few times for some group classes and stuff. My dog started excelling at the different sports that were there. And I took the job about a year ago. And I was running group classes to start and the Puppy Foundation things. And a lot of things that I had learned throughout those years applied to this job. But now there was a whole new realm of things in terms of like, what working dogs look like what the lifestyle for a working dog looks like and you know, we have some clients who want to do protection sports or personal protection or scent detection. And then it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. And so it's one of those things where I'm just continuously learning and I'm continuously trying to absorb things. And I'm continuously also changing my mind on certain topics. And so there are sometimes where I go back and I look at a video that I maybe had shared or posted from six months ago or a year ago or two years ago. I'm like, man, I am so different in how I think and develop now than what I did even just a few months ago. And because it's just a constant learning process and constantly trial and erroring and constantly trying to figure out what you fully believe in. You don't always have like a clear vision. You just, it's got to be you learn as you go and you apply things and you figure it out. And the more you start to realize like, wow, this causes such a high success rate. I really do believe in this path. I do believe in this approach. I do believe in in some of these things because I'm seeing it translate to so many dogs and so many owners are getting, you know, the response that they're looking for. And you start to really go the direction of the things that are getting you the results that you want and that are getting the dogs to be happy and engaged and and enjoy what they're doing. And so for me, like the training journey went from, you know, eight years ago just learning on my own dogs to then apprenticing to then utilizing the foster opportunities to actually put a lot of these skills onto them. Practice on them so that I can develop Mm. those skills and then transfer it to other dogs as well.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, a lot of people might find training really overwhelming because of the variety of it. But I think if you change your perspective and just see like you've kind of experienced like there's so much information out there. And that means there's so many opportunities to try new techniques, new things. And then you know, you find the ones that work for you and the ones that help you. And then obviously, if you're taking it a step further and making it your professional goal, then you get <laughs> to really dive in find mentors. And I think that's amazing. I wanted to ask you since yeah, you were just saying about like learning and how you've been able to use your fosters as you know, that opportunity to learn and that opportunity to meet so many different dogs with different personalities, different needs. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions about training rescues, either from people who are, you know, never dealt with rescue dogs before, but also people in the rescue community
1: so I think the biggest thing is like people tend to cripple their dog's development because they create the storyline that this dog has had a horrible past and don't get me wrong some of these dogs you know the ones that come from by rain sometimes they have acid burn or I've seen a dog who's been macheted and took her eye out this, these dogs have been through incredible things sometimes like incredibly horrible things sometimes but it's important to know the dogs do in some way stay in a moment and if you stay in that moment of you poor thing I can't believe that happened to you. I'm so sad. I'm just going to make sure that your life is easy and carefree. Although you mean well, you're not giving a dog an opportunity to develop further than that, right? And dogs are incredibly resilient and and bounce back and are strong. And you need to try and consistently develop skills with them so that they can have more to life you know, there was a, a dog that it wasn't a rescue dog, but I, I always find this so interesting. She had all of her sight four years of her life. And one day she had something happen to one of her eyes and they removed it. And then the following week, the other eye got an issue and they had to remove that. So She went from having full sight for mm-hmm. four years to losing hundred percent of her sight in two weeks. And I remember seeing her walking down the street one week post-op and she was walking down the street like she had her eyes like she was fine she wasn't hesitant she wasn't tiptoeing she was just running it out into the sidewalk like it was no big deal and i remember thinking holy smokes as humans if we lost all of our vision in in two or three weeks we would be so slow moving and apprehensive and we'd be sitting there feeling sorry for ourselves and really trying to spend a lot of time developing the confidence to just walk out into the world like we did when we had our sight. And for dogs, they're just like, yeah, no, cool. Like I'll just go with the punches. And we get as humans stuck in this emotional state of like you poor thing, you must be so sad. And it's like, no, dogs are incredible. Dogs are are, are so good at adapting. And it's it's the people that oftentimes hold them back from accomplishing more. There's a a dog, Stevie, that I worked with. Stevie is blind and deaf, he came from Texas, and his, his owners are incredible. And they're a really, really good example of he may be blind and deaf, but he still has this ability to live a very normal life. And they still take him out on adventures. They bring him to the groomers. And you know, I brought him to the creek, I brought him to the beach, he's he still does all of the things that dogs do because we never said, you poor thing, let's just keep you safe in a house or let's just euthanize you because you couldn't have quality life. He has a very quality life and and he does all of the things all of the other dogs do. He just does it slightly differently. And so the biggest mistake that people tend to do is, is they just you know they feel sorry for the dog and then they just keep them in this safe little ball assuming that they can't develop other skills assuming that they can't grow and and that's a huge mistake these dogs have the ability it's just that you have to you know slowly help them develop these skills and slowly help them explore the world and not feel so gosh darn sorry for them like they are not as delicate um, emotionally as we tend to think they are they're incredibly resilient and incredibly well adapted so that's i've got to say one of the things that people tend to do with rescue dogs is they get stuck and hooked on the story and then they never allow the dog to develop past that storyline.
0: That's so true. One of the top questions we get from fosters and adopters is like, what's their story? What happened to them? And I almost think they relate that as like, what can I expect from this dog? Kind of like, you know, when articles (laughs) recently came out (laughs) about certain rescues, the focus was all about the bios and definitely not disclosing behaviors is a huge concern. But knowing every dog's backstory is not a puzzle piece in interpreting your dog. I think people kind of see it that way, maybe because a lot of us humans are in therapy and putting together pieces. And (laughs) we think that the same thing might help our dogs, but they definitely operate very differently.
1: Yeah, very, very, very different
0: for sure. I I actually had uh, Melanie for Nanaimo on the pod. That was my first episode. And she (laughs) talked about Stevie and obviously Nanaimo as well. Like dogs just don't have drama experiences in the same way we do. There's definitely an aspect of the past that affects them, but it isn't like you said they live in the moment. So it can completely just like inform some of their patterns, but there's always a much bigger opportunity to develop new patterns, especially in a new environment.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. We had, um, James was a dog. The dodo did a little thing on him. He was from the Korean meat market through Team Dog, and Mm -hmm. he was a good example of this. He had lived his entire life in a cement enclosure, completely isolated away from the rest of the world and then he was flown here to a big city where there was a lot of stuff and don't get me wrong he was very you know nervous at first and very apprehensive but within 12 hours of being at my house he was playing with dogs he was jumping around he was having a grand old time now there were definitely things that we needed to develop over time he was no longer thinking about the isolated cement enclosure that he was in in Korea he was here he was having fun and he was playing and he was being goofy and and now he lives this incredible life on a massive property way by Kingston and like if I had said oh you poor thing you know we're just gonna keep you away from the world and hidden he wouldn't have developed this really playful silly side of things right and we eventually got him to the point where he was walking and he was doing pack walks and he was going through the middle of the city and he was confident he was carrying himself with confidence now and it was such a, a quick development but I only went at his speed and if he was doing well we continued on and if he needed more time we gave him more time it really was an interesting thing to think about where he came from and where he went in such a short short amount of time and he just was resilient and just kind of pushed on like nothing had ever happened to him
0: and honestly like you said the stoppers usually come from the humans and their anxiety or their worrying versus the dog like we also at fetch have so many examples of dogs who've gone through really tragic histories but then they come here and they are like the most trusting happy people dogs ever even if even though people have failed them like numerous times you you know, they just don't think about things that way. And obviously, there's the ones who are fearful and the ones who aren't like that. But it it just means that you have an opportunity to show them something new.
1: Sassafras is a really good example of a dog who does well with a lot of structure in very, very slow development. I've had her for off and on two and a half years. And she's a lovely dog. She does great here. We've never had an issue with her in the home. She does Fine on walks, she's great on on public transit, she does well at the facility, she used to go to daycare, she does well in all of these environments under our handling. We find these homes for her, we set people up for the success. We tell them, hey, listen, for the first week, make sure she's crated, make sure she's wearing a leash, make sure she's wearing a muzzle, develop a relationship with her, make an active effort to hand feed her and train her and walk with her and do all of these things. And without fail people see her and they're like she's fine. She looks fine. She seems fine. Everything's fine. She doesn't need a leash. She doesn't need a muzzle. She She's fine. And without fail she goes and she ends up in a tight spot where she bites someone. It's totally not her fault. Mm-hmm. She will only bite you if she feels like she is cornered or trapped or scared. It's unfortunate that human error has ended her up with us time and time and time again. But she's this incredible dog who loves so deeply and so hard and she is active and fun and now out- going and she loves to train and she loves challenges and she's so 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 trusting in me because we've developed this relationship over the last few years where I have shown her time and time again that I've got this you don't need to worry about it I will advocate for you I will make sure no one comes near you and this is a really good lesson in how long this journey can take sometimes it has been two and a half years, and wow. she is only now able to move around a facility who's full of trainers and training apprentices, out of muzzle, without of leash, and even in that scenario where I'm, I'm putting a little bit more risk out there um, and allowing her to develop the skills... I'm still right behind her, ready to coach her through every interaction. I'm still ready to, to advocate for her if someone misses something. I'm still there and ready if she needs me, even in this scenario that took us two and a half years to get to this point where I could trust her and she could trust me. I'm still there, ready for her. If She needs me. I've got her. I'm I'm prepared. I'm not letting my guard down. My eyes are locked on her. And this is where people, I think, struggle is that we mm-hmm. try so hard to get a response and we try to get our dogs, what we would refer to as fixed in such a short amount of time. And, and it's for each dog, it's different. And it's a long process. And I, I've started recognizing myself recently that I'm a very low risk person. I think that that's what makes me so successful in so many scenarios is that I just don't take the risk. Yeah. Like if I'm, If I think that there's a possibility that there's going to be a bad outcome, then why would I even take the risk to do it? It took us two and a half years to get to this point because I just don't take risks with her. I don't put her in situations where I think she may or may not fail. I only put her in situations where I really truly believe she can be successful. And even then I'm making sure that I am controlling the environment to the best of my abilities. And she knows that I'm here if she needs me and I will make all of the things go away if she needs that from me.
0: I mean, that's so incredible to think of a dog. I mean, I don't think my dog would be ready to be in the middle of a training facility with dogs and people off leash, he would just not be well behaved. Um, So I think that's honestly just incredible in itself. And like you said, it's like one heartbreaking thing about being in this community and this field is just unfortunately, when dogs get let down or dogs are put in situations where these incidents happen that could have been prevented. So I really feel for a dog like Sassafras. What's incredible, which not every dog gets is that they have a consistent place to go back to to restart that training journey and get back to where they used to be. Because that's the hard part is say, you know, bites happen, rehomes happen, and then rescues have to scramble to find and foster. And unfortunately, sometimes it has to be a brand new place and they have to start kind of like from total scratch.
1: Absolutely. We've been fortunate enough to, to be here for SAS every time she's been returned. And we're very thankful as well that the rescue that has her paws above, they have a farm. And so when we go on vacation, yeah. she- goes there and that's she's very comfortable and happy there so she has a safe space back and forth and we'll never need to hopefully ever put her in a situation where she needs to start from scratch and you know when she gets adopted we known her for two and a half years we know how she can be successful we know what she can accomplish and we just need you know adopters to know that that they can get here too it just takes a long time you cannot rush that process
0: definitely are there any other dogs in your care or out there that you want (laughs) to highlight
1: yeah I mean Gibson is an incredible dog Gibson was an owner surrender at about a year old he to my understanding was in a home with children and I always you know think to myself like gosh if I had kids and I was going to raise a puppy that's a hard task it would be incredibly difficult to raise a puppy and get all of the social and stuff down while trying to raise three young children and I imagine that's an incredible incredibly hard thing to do and so my theory is that he just you know didn't get the exposure that he needed and I, again I don't know this for sure but it's not that he was traumatized. It's not that he had something incredibly horrible happen to him. I think it was just that he didn't get a chance to develop healthy social skills in that first year. He uh, was given up at about a year old because of resource guarding and I think a lot of things that people don't know about resource guarding is a lot of it is relationship like don't get me wrong there are other components to it but a huge component is relationship and so he is the kind of dog who he doesn't want food taken away from him and I think it's because it's the kind of idea in his head that I don't know if I'll get food after this I don't know if you're taking my food away for good I don't know if I'm gonna get fed like again it's kind of like a, a fear related resource guarding for him with food it's he's definitely really insecure about food and so with him it was just so so important to develop this understanding that hey man I'm not here to take your food away like I, if anything I, when I approach I, I I continue to add value to food and, and if he is eating I'm floating around the room and I'm not you know paying attention to him and I'm making sure that I'm, I'm again low risk and I'm prepared for anything that could possibly possibly go sideways but I'm trying to put him in a situation where that's not going to happen and over time I remember this there was this moment that happened maybe a month or two ago where he picked up this phone and he brought it to me and he was like celebrating and I was like the fact took so oh my god I'm actually gonna cry
0: that's like insane
1: (laughs) yeah I'm literally gonna cry um to trust me to a point will you you'll bring me something that's so high value to you something that's really incredible right yeah so okay
0: (laughs) That's incredible.
1: Yeah, I was just so happy because like that is like the ultimate trust right there yeah and so that was like an incredible moment for him and he's just this extraordinary dog and it's really unfortunate because there's just such a high level of risk when you're working with a dog who has resource guarding especially Mm -hmm. when it's you know a medium or a larger breed can't let your guard down you can't you know just let him freely move around the house because he gets possession of an item and this isn't necessarily his character but if you don't know the dog you have to take the precautions of making sure that you don't have things on the counter for him to steal you you have to be mindful that resource guarding can transfer to other other things can transfer to toys and bones and furniture and people, and and it's just this really complicated behavior. But for him, it's all about trust, and as long as he trusts you, he's good, right? And so he's just he's this wonderful dog who has so much behind him and so much potential. And for him, people get so attracted to his posts because he's this gorgeous gorgeous dog but then the moment I say hey he has a bite history or hey he has resource guarding and he can't be around children and you're gonna have to take a while to develop a relationship with him people just drop off like flies and it's the most heartbreaking thing because here I have this incredibly wonderful dog that brings so much joy to my life and no one's willing to work or what the dog that I've seen you know like you you know everyone wants this turnkey ready yeah. dog who they can just throw into any social situation I understand like part of the reason that we get dogs is we want to take them to the cottage and We want to take them kayaking. We want to do all these things with them and he can do that. He's just going to have to do it a little bit differently. Yeah. You know, we can't be careless and silly and just let him run the beach with a bunch of random people around He's probably never going to be that dog. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't deserve a loving home with people who are going to spoil him and treat him right. And I just feel so much for these dogs who are kind of just not worth it. in Some people's eyes not worth the extra effort, not worth the extra time. And they're totally worth it.
0: Gibson seems to have the same history as Boss. Boss was also surrendered by a family, developed resource guarding with the children. That is like a lot of the remnants that we deal with. And we go through, I would say, phases where he's happy and in a great mood and he's not resource guarding. And then it presents itself again. When we introduce Queenie to our home, we're honestly, we've had to pretty much pause on fostering because it's definitely stressing him out enough that his resource guarding comes back up. What is hard to kind of communicate is that training is a long term thing that you have to keep implementing your dogs especially for something like resource guarding so that is tough to sell or to like tell people but with every shitty moment we've had with boss that has frustrated us um we've had you know 10 times like happy moments and incredible moments and he's has so much to offer he's such a smart dog I find that most dogs with resource guarding are incredibly smart (laughs)
1: yeah it's because we have to like be creative about other outlets and things that we need to do with them and then we end up I feel like putting a little extra effort into them too right so then they being way more engaged and way more like offering of other things in compensation for that
0: yeah definitely I think there's just so much to be gained and I think too what's hard is that people want these quote-unquote perfect dogs we definitely at Fetch are seeing dogs sit on our site for like really long periods of time who in my opinion have quite minor behavioral issues even even just like city leash reactivity seems to be like a deterrent I think people like you said are not adopting as much because they all just adopted but it's it is hard to see this shift where people are really like I think just like seeing the first perfect dog who pops up but then what happens is they aren't ready to set up those boundaries anyway and those dogs end up coming back to us with behavioral issues as well so yeah, it's just a yeah. really sad cycle it's
1: a heartbreaking community to be involved in for sure
0: yeah it is It's amazing sometimes. And then uh, sometimes you're just like, oh my gosh, what did I do to myself? (laughs) (laughs) Do
1: it for the dogs. Do it for the dogs.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Thank you for highlighting those two. And um, if people were interested in checking out their profiles, what rescues are they under?
1: Sassafras is with Paws Above. uh, And then Gibson is with Tyson and Friends.
0: Um, Where can people find you?
1: Um, I think our Instagram account is probably the easiest. Um, and so we are Canadian Canine Crew um, on Instagram. Um, if they're looking for um, training, then they can go over to Bancroft Canine Services. Um, and you can catch me training there. Um, and then when you're looking at all of our foster dogs, we're looking at Maddie's Place, Paws Above, and Tyson and Friends are what we're currently fostering for.
0: Uh, three great rescues. So definitely check them out as well. Um, thank you, Amber, for taking the time to chat with me. This was really fun.
1: Yeah, I agree. This is really, really great. Thanks for having me on.
0: Rescue Dog Moms is a project by Yamini inspired by her Rescue Dog Boss, who you can find on Instagram at Bad Boy Boss. To keep up with the Rescue Dog Moms podcast, you can follow us at rescuedogmoms.ca or on Instagram at Rescue Dog Moms pod. See you soon.